0: Empathy is what changes hearts and minds. When Casper got out of prison, he was still clinging to white supremacist ideology, and he wasn't going to let go of it overnight.
1: It took me a while, you know, after I got out. Partly, I think, just because I was trying to reintegrate into society. I wasn't looking at debunking those ideas yet. Um, I mean, I, I was but I wasn't focused on that. My whole focus was, I gotta get my life back together.
0: His racism got in the way of that though, and it continued to damage his relationships.
1: My mother, my biological mother, um, she actually started dating a black guy for a while. And I, I stopped talking to her, you know, because she was with a black guy. And I'm like, well, now we're done, you know? And she was like, oh, that's what you always say. You'll come talk to me again. And I'm like, no, like now we're done.
0: Although he had begun to question his pseudo-scientific beliefs about race, thanks to the books on biology and genetics that his friend Mike had lent him in prison, it would take more than sterile scientific knowledge to change his attitude. When asked to boil it down, Casper says that what ultimately transformed him was empathy. Empathy from the very people he had viewed for so long as the enemy. In this episode, we'll hear about the first interactions that instilled in Casper a desire to change. We'll also hear about the struggles he faced in rejoining society, struggles that would nearly destroy him. This is Hate No More, the story of one man's journey into and out of violent white supremacy. I'm Henry Rambo. Casper's first order of business upon leaving prison was finding a job, and as a newly released ex-convict, he couldn't afford to be picky.
1: I started working for a heating and cooling place as a helper. It wasn't the greatest money. You know, it was, it was, what, 8 75 an hour, something like that.
0: Fortunately, he wasn't in desperate financial circumstances.
1: While I was in prison, my biological father had passed away. And he left me a little bit of money.
0: He describes the amount as a good chunk of change and says he was resolved not to waste it.
1: And I took that money and decided, okay, I'm going to work this job just to get back on my feet, you know, get going so I don't spend, you know, my inheritance money.
0: He ended up moving in with his ex-girlfriend's brother, whom we'll call Max. During the first few months, he thought about his career goals and began bouncing ideas off of Max.
1: And we start talking about taking this money from my father and starting a business.
0: Specifically, a general contracting company a line of work Max was intimately familiar with.
1: He knew everything there is to know about running a construction company because his dad had a a construction company.
0: After talking it over for a while, they decided to take the leap. Casper would provide the capital, and Max would provide the expertise.
1: You know, and he was like, okay, this is what we're going to need. We started buying a shit ton of tools and a work truck and a trailer and Got a compressor and some some nail guns and everything else we needed, and he started dropping bids.
0: He says the first project they landed was the construction of a bank.
1: That was pretty neat. I wasn't sure we were going to get that contract because I didn't know if they were going to look into my background.
0: When he expressed concern about this, Max told him not to worry.
1: He's like, we're, we're doing the framing and everything. We're not building the vault. And that was it, we were we were off and running. Once we finished that contract and we got the full payment and everything, we had made like $80,000 profit. And he goes, now look, don't blow this money. Like that's not just money we can spend. We're gonna take that 80 grand, we're gonna go buy some more shit, we're gonna hire some more people, and we're gonna get some more work. And I'm like, cool, let's make it happen.
0: Their next few projects were houses, which Casper says were fun to build and he was amazed at how quickly the business took off.
1: We made a lot of money quick, and I ended up buying this house. Like, within a year after I got out, I had enough money to buy this house outright. Things were great.
0: He recognizes that compared to other former inmates, he was fortunate to find success so quickly.
1: I'm an exception, though. I had, I had money from an inheritance. Not everybody has that coming out of prison. You know, I got lucky.
0: Another big development came about in his relationship with his ex-girlfriend, the mother of his daughter. Casper says he hadn't been planning to get back together with her, but since Max was her brother, he started seeing her around, and before long, they had decided to give their relationship another shot. Their vision was simple.
1: We're going to live together, we're going to have this happy little family, now that I'm out of prison, I'm getting
0: my shit together. Things were looking good business was booming and Casper and Max started searching for more people to help them out. That was when Casper met someone who would begin to change his life. An older black man everyone called Old Man John.
1: And, you know, John came around one day and he says, hey, you know, I'm an old guy. I don't I don't climb up ladders and all that stuff. But, you know, if you want to hire me on part time just to, you know, be a helper and, and clean up guy, you know. I could do that and I'm like,
0: okay. So they hired him. In the beginning, their relationship was all business.
1: John would run and get us supplies, you know, if we were we were low well on nails or whatever, we just needed a few more extra two by fours. I could send him out with his pickup truck, you know, throw him a couple of dollars for gas and he would go pick stuff up.
0: But as they worked together, they started talking more and getting to know each other.
1: We're taking a break or whatever things were you know slowed down at the moment and i'm like so you know what'd you do before this john you know and he was like oh i've had all kinds of jobs blah 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 and you know he says my biggest regret is quitting the nfl to go to vietnam i said what
0: john's story was that he had played college football and been drafted by the nfl but then volunteered to fight in the vietnam war
1: And I was amazed. I'm like, why would you do that? You know, and he's like, because I knew, you know, that my people were over there fighting. And he says, I I just felt it necessary to go over there and do what I could to help.
0: Because of his mindset at the time, Casper says he completely misinterpreted what John meant by the phrase, my people.
1: And I'm like, all right, so basically you were going over there to, you know, help support the black man and all that, huh? And he was like, No, that's not what I said. And I'm like, well, you just said your people were over there fighting. He goes, no, I meant Americans. He goes, I don't give a fuck what color they were. They were all Americans. And that hit me. That hit me hard.
0: John didn't hesitate to criticize Casper's way of thinking.
1: Yeah, and he was like, see, why do you always have to think, you know, racist stuff like that? And I was like, well... Just the way you said it, my people. And he goes, you're all my people. And he goes, I look at it like this. I was born here. I'm an American. All that African-American stuff. I ain't never been to Africa. He was like, I'm from New Jersey. You know, And he goes, the same as you. He was like, yeah, our skin is different colors or whatever. He goes, but we're both born and raised right here in South Jersey.
0: The suggestion that their commonalities were deeper than their differences was new to Casper. And the more he heard of John's backstory, the more he found he could relate to him and the more he liked him.
1: He was like, listen, I was just a black dude that was born, you know, back in the 40s. And yeah, we had a pretty rough and everything. And he goes, but we worked just like every other American in our neighborhood, you know, Irish, Italian, it didn't matter. It was like my dad worked his ass off, put me through school, helped me get scholarships and everything. I made something of myself. He says, then I decided to go fight in the war, and maybe it had something to do with my skin color, maybe it didn't. He goes, but I see a whole lot of other people who aren't black who got out of the military and got shit on just like I did.
0: Casper knew those stories all too well. His father had told him what it was like to return from the war only to be spit on and called a baby killer. Hearing that John had faced the same kind of abuse made Casper feel a connection to him. And with that connection came deep internal conflict.
1: That's when I started to realize something's gotta change because I've always prided myself on being honest. And I got this black guy working for me, this older you know, veteran who sacrificed so much to join the Marines and go fight in Vietnam as a volunteer. And here I am, a neo-Nazi skinhead And I feel embarrassed to tell him that. And I'm like, man, I'm lying to this dude. Every day I see him, I'm lying to this man. That can't continue. I have to make this right. So I tell him, and he was like, whatever, dude. You know, he was like, we're not living together. As long as you pay my check, I don't care. Don't call me the N-word. Don't think I'm your slave. We ain't gonna have no problems.
0: The fact that John didn't seem upset only deepened Casper's conflict.
1: That was one of the things that started getting the wheels going, though. How can this man just blow that off like that? Like, fuck it, whatever, I don't care what you do, you know? And I'm like, I respect him so much more for that, but at the same time, I feel like a piece of shit.
0: The more they talked, the more Casper told John about the things he had believed and the things he was still questioning.
1: Somehow, the one day we got on the subject of me talking about creativity.
0: Here, Casper is referring to the white supremacist religion, the creativity movement that he had been a part of.
1: And how they, you know, have this belief that every ethnicity is a different species. And he laughed his ass off like he was literally just in tears, cracking up. And he goes, (laughs) you really believe that bullshit? And I'm like, well, they have paperwork and, you know, all this other stuff trying to prove it and everything. He was like, man, listen, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. He goes, but that eugenic shit got debunked before you were ever even born. You know, and I'm like, yeah, people have told me that. And he goes, you need to read more books, man.
0: In fact, Casper still wasn't sure at this point exactly how wrong he had been. And John's reactions caused him to examine his beliefs more deeply.
1: Even though he wasn't trying to do it, like, I didn't take it as disrespectful, but it made me feel like, you know, am I really that fucking stupid? And it got me thinking, do I really need to, to look, you know, at more stuff here? You know, like, I know I'm not really believing that anymore, but how far off am
0: I? In search of the answer to this question, Casper began spending his evenings doing research on the Internet. But the Internet, being what it was, almost took him in the wrong direction. He would type in questions like, Are ethnicities different species? and the top results that popped up were the same type of white supremacist propaganda he'd gotten in prison. At first, he found himself reading things that seemed to confirm that propaganda things written by J.P. Rushton, for example, who was a well known white supremacist. But fortunately, And this is critical. Casper made the conscious decision to read opposing views as well.
1: And then I'd go back to the original search page and I'd see other articles listed that were counter arguments for that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me read this then. And I'd read the same scientists that J.P. Rushton would use as citations where they were like, He took this completely out of context. That's not what my study says at all. This man's a fraud, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, son of a bitch, isn't that something? You know, and it, it, man, that furthered me so much. And it all started with having a conversation with someone from the other side, you know, and John John was an invaluable asset into, you know, changing my life.
0: This point strikes me as so important that I'd like to linger on it for a moment. Change starts with conversation, civil conversation in the context of genuine personal connection and a willingness to engage with the so-called other side in good faith. Those are the circumstances in which empathy arises and hearts and minds change. And it seems to me that these are precisely the elements that are missing from our interactions on social media and, increasingly, in many of our institutions. Of course, conversation is only the beginning. In Casper's case, it ultimately wasn't just the things John said that helped Casper change. It was John himself. The fact that he was a good man and that Casper could relate to him. And also John's family, which was racially mixed. That was something that had been anathema to Casper for years. But getting to know John and his wife completely overturned his feelings on interracial love.
1: People trying to tell me, oh, it's not natural for white people to be with black people. Listen, John and his wife were married for freaking 60 some odd years before he finally died. So don't fucking tell me that's not natural because that's natural love. Like, you can't deny that.
0: John himself could see that Casper's views were changing and he encouraged his family and friends to spend time with Casper and to show him love and kindness. And before long, Casper realized that his ideology had been causing him to miss out on a lot of what life had to offer.
1: It was just this whole new world, you know? I was like, wow, all these fucking people that I hated for no, no reason, really, just because their ancestry, And it just, it finally clicked in, like, holy fuck, I wasted all those years of my life when I could have had people like this that are just all about positive and just living life. And instead, I got hooked up with these groups that are like, burn everything down. It's got to be destroyed because it belongs to us. And it makes you think all that was just a waste of fucking time. You know, yeah, I was in prison, but I still could have been doing so much more stuff. I could have had so many more people that supported me, you know, and I gave all that up just to be fucking angry and hurtful.
0: Casper's relationship with John marked the beginning of a long period of cognitive dissonance for him. His views were changing but he had been deeply tied to SPS for so long that he wasn't yet able to walk away from it, especially since he was so high-ranking.
1: I still had a lot of pull. You know, I, I was still recognized as being one of the founding members.
0: He was no longer actively recruiting or spreading white supremacist propaganda, but he continued to help SPS in other ways. For example, members would write and ask him to do background checks on prospective recruits.
1: They'd send me a name or whatever, and I'd try and do a background check on them, whatever. And if I, you know, gave him clearance, you're getting clearance from a founding member. You're good to go.
0: His continued involvement was born out of a sense of obligation. He says he didn't feel good about it.
1: But I was still trying to support people in SPS because a lot of these guys, they were family to me when I didn't have any. And... I hid it from them that, you know, I didn't want to be this racist person anymore. I didn't want to be a neo-Nazi skinhead. I kept that quiet from them. Kind of like when I first became an atheist and I tried to keep that quiet from my family. This was the same thing. Part of it was because I cared about, you know, a lot of these people. And I didn't want to lose them and I didn't want them to become my enemies. I wanted to try and figure out some way, you know, how can I do this and still keep this bond with these people?
0: Another thing that was hard for Casper to let go of was the prison mentality. For so many years, he'd been living by the rule that you have to watch your back every second or you die.
1: No matter what you're doing, you better know who everybody is and where everybody's at. You know, when when you let your guard down, that's when you get got. You know, so I was always on guard in prison.
0: This made it that much more difficult to reintegrate into society. Just being in a grocery store or a restaurant, he had the same level of alertness as when he'd suspected someone was trying to shank him in the prison yard.
1: I had that mindset. You know, who were all these people? What are they doing? Are they looking at me? Or are they going to try something? And it's like you're, you're in fucking Walmart, man. Take it easy.
0: He says it took him years to let go of that. And even now, he still hasn't completely. Things that are normal and easy for most people were almost impossible for Casper. Like watching a prison movie.
1: Shawshank Redemption, that one's hard for me. It took me... Um, eight or nine different times to actually watch the whole thing. I've never watched it from beginning to end. Certain parts of that movie are so fucking realistic, I start sweating and, and just, like, having an anxiety attack. I can't. I can't.
0: I ask him which scenes in particular.
1: Like, right in the beginning, where he first gets into the prison, and those... Big giant fucking door slam in there, and you hear that reverberating sound. It's like holy fuck, that's like intake and <laughs> you know, and it it'll fuck with you.
0: Some of the violent scenes, especially, give him flashbacks to when he witnessed people getting killed in prison.
1: That scene where they're in the laundry going after him, <sighs> that one got to me. I just immediately. It was like I was right back in Raleway looking out that window going, oh, fuck, they got him. And started sweating, you know, everything like, yeah, I can't watch this fucking movie.
0: A lot of people ask him which movie most accurately represents the prison experience. And there's something about the question he doesn't like.
1: I get it. People want to understand what it's really like. I don't want to make you understand what it's really like. I like you. You know I have a lot of respect for you and I don't want you to know what that fucking horrible feeling is like.
0: Still, he does have a ready answer.
1: The most realistic prison movie that I've ever seen is American Me. And granted, that movie is based more around the Chicanos on the West Coast, but their ethnicity, take that away and that's every prison gang that I've ever come across.
0: It was watching that movie that took him to one of the darkest mental states he's been in since his release.
1: I remember sitting in my chair, thinking to myself, that was me, that was me. And I should just go back and do that again. It's not worth being out here. I don't know why I don't act like that anymore. And then I'd just fucking break down, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you can't go back to that. Why would you want to go back to that? And sometimes, I, I have to agree with a lot of guys i see seen go back to prison, sometimes it feels like it, it's just easier
0: to be on the inside. This was at a moment in Casper's life when things had fallen apart again. A tragedy had occurred in his family. The details of which he asked me to omit. Suffice it to say, he felt like he'd lost everything and he had a breakdown.
1: And I decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm out of here. I don't I I just I can't do this anymore. And I took off, left New Jersey.
0: But before leaving, he cashed out his half of the contracting business. That gave him a good sum of money to live on for a while.
1: I had almost three hundred thousand dollars that was just mine after taxes and everything else. And I drove around the country everywhere. Um, I went all down south. I went back and forth from California to New Jersey three different times, uh, just all over the freaking place. And I spent almost everything.
0: During that period, he became heavily dependent on alcohol.
1: I got out to Maryland and that's that was the first time I started drinking. I bought I bought a bottle of freaking Southern Comfort and a twelve pack and I got hammered, you know. And it wasn't it wasn't that bad at first, you know, it was like every couple of days to be like, Fuck that, I'm getting drunk again. And and it was, you know, instead of every three days, it was every two days. Every two days became every day then every day, it started being more and more. It went from, you know, a pint and a 12-pack to two pints and a 12-pack. And I did that for a long time.
0: It got to the point where he couldn't go a single day without drinking. Sundays were a problem for him, because no matter where he went, he couldn't find liquor stores or bars that were open then.
1: So, Friday or Saturday... I would make sure to hit up a liquor store or a distributor and I'd load up on extra beer and whiskey. Cause I knew when Sunday rolled around, nothing was going to be open, you know, but, uh, yeah, I did a lot of drinking.
0: He says he would have drunk himself to death if a family friend hadn't intervened.
1: Then, um, I had somebody tell me, Hey, get up here to Pennsylvania, you know, get up here in the mountains, get your fucking head cleared. You know, you're going to die. You gotta stop.
0: It was an older man, someone Casper saw as a father figure. In fact, in our interviews, he often just called the man Dad. Casper ended up moving in with him and once more began trying to get his life together. This was no easy task.
1: It was, it was still bad. I was still drinking a lot, you know, um, floating around job to job, you know, working in different factories, whatever.
0: Then one night in 2009, he hit rock bottom.
1: I went on a bender, I got absolutely trashed. I had a blood alcohol content of .384. Like I was that close to being dead from alcohol poisoning.
0: He says he doesn't remember any of the details of what happened that night. He only has memories of drinking during the day and then going to a bar.
1: Then apparently sometime that night, I decided I wanted to die. So I grabbed a hunting knife or whatever, um, nothing super huge like you know six inch knife or whatever and i was walking down the street screaming for the police to come kill me uh the cops showed up i'm standing there in the street now they they had this on dash cam and all this is the only reason i know what happened because i don't remember any of this i was standing in the middle of the street telling them shoot me Shoot me and get it over with. I want to die. Shoot me right fucking here. And they tasered me.
0: Police transcripts confirm that this is exactly what happened. After that, the next thing he remembers is waking up in a hospital.
1: They had me up in the psych ward for a couple of weeks, got an evaluation. Then after that two weeks, they came and arrested me for six counts of attempted murder of a police officer.
0: In fact, the court records show that it was aggravated assault, not attempted murder. But in any case, he went to trial, and lost. He was sentenced to a maximum of 22 years in prison.
1: I about shit myself. (laughs) I was like, I just got more fucking time for this shit than I did for killing somebody.
0: Just as with the homicide conviction, he would file an appeal. But in the meantime, he once more found himself in state prison, this time in Pennsylvania. And when he arrived he discovered that there were members of SPS there. He outranked all of them, and he was going to have to decide how to deal with them. We'll hear more about that, next time, on Hate No More. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment right now, yes, now, to rate it, review it, and share it. To support us and get immediate ad-free access to all episodes, go to patreon.com slash hate no more or click on the link in the show notes. Hate No More was written and produced by me, Henry Rambo. Sound design was provided by Michael Parkhurst at Nostalgic Innovations. Special thanks to my wife, and to Ryan, Allison, George, and, of course, Casper. Finally, there's more than enough outrage and hate in the world already. If you log onto social media at all today, instead of sharing what upsets you, do what you can to make kindness and empathy go viral. We all need to play a higher game. And with that, thank you for listening.